Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today, we conclude our series entitled The Spirit of the Law. The purpose of today's message is to draw back together over all the previous six Sundays that we would see a unified theme that speaks to Jesus' true purpose in correcting the Pharisees' false teachings. We will seek to answer the question, what is Jesus really teaching them? And uncover his purpose in describing what living in the kingdom of God truly looks like. Thanks for listening again as we examine the uniting structure in the Sermon on the Mount. I went to school in Ohio, which is where I met my wife, but uh, there was a year separation after I graduated uh, where I lived in Texas. And so the commute, commute from Texas to Ohio took all day long. And I never wanted uh, to leave because uh, the, the girl who was my fiance was going to become my wife, right? Um, but there was one time where, we, where I was uh, leaving Ohio, driving back to Texas, uh, driving south of Cincinnati. And if you've ever driven down uh, 75 or 71, there, there is a, a little stretch of highway where these two interstates are the same road, um, but then they split, and uh, Highway 75 makes its way to Louisville, and Highway 71 makes its way to Lexington. Now, one of those roads will lead me to Texas. The other will not. And I remember it was late because I left late, and it was raining, and I missed the sign for the turn to make sure that I was heading west towards Louisville, and instead, I was on my way to Lexington. The thing was, I didn't know it. I thought I was on the right road. I thought I didn't miss any turn. This was the time before GPSs were, were so prevalent. You still had to look at a paper map to find your way places. And I was making my way, being self-deceived that I was going to reach my intended destination when, in fact, I was headed in the wrong direction. But I didn't know it. You know, if you were to ask the average American, in fact, the average person living now in the 21st century, if you were to die, would you go to heaven? What do you suppose they would say? The, the large majority, and, and you take you just a click or two on the internet to find uh, evidence for this again and again, of the response from the worldly person. The non-Christian is, oh yeah, I'll go to heaven. I'm sure I'll go to heaven. And if you were to ask them why, do you know what the answer would be? Because, I'm, yeah, I'm a good person. I know I'm a good person because all I got to do is look around me and I'm sure I could find somebody who is uh, worse than me. So I, I, I know I do bad things. Sure, I've done some bad things, but I've done plenty of other good things. And the way in which they think about how God understands receiving us would be just to balance it. You just got to make sure the scales tip in your favor. And so, yes, they say, I'm sure I would go to heaven because I'm a good person. You know, you can have a sign <clears throat> that says Louisville this way, Lexington this way. But you, if you miss the sign, you're never going to see the error of your ways. Or you know what you could do? You could do like uh, maybe some people, they may ignore the sign. Oh, I know it's there. I know it's there, but I don't want to pay any attention to it. Or, or, or worse, worse of all is where people would try to reinterpret it reinterpret the sign so they're self-deceived thinking that they are going the right 
direction. And I think that's what happens in our culture. I think that's what is most predominant in the world that we live in is that people have either missed the sign of their own sinfulness. They've, they've then ignored the sign because I don't want to, I don't want to hear that message. Who wants to hear that they're guilty of sin or worst of all, they reinterpret it. So they become self-deceived into thinking they're really, they're really acceptable before God when in fact they're not. Uh, there, there's a verse that we uh, many Sundays uh, will, uh, I'll say here from the pulpit. It's 1 John 1, 8. I have it here on the screen. It says, if we claim to be without sin, uh, we deceive who? We, we are self-deceived. The way we would say this is, we're fooling who? You're, you're fooling yourself. And it says that the truth is not in us. And then verse 10 says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him that is God, ought to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Uh, this morning we are going to, we're going to finish our series. That's, uh, this is the seventh week, uh, looking at the topic of the spirit of the law. And for the past six Sundays, we have addressed within the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' formulaic way of addressing the teaching of the Pharisees by saying this little phrase, You've heard that it said, but I say to you, as Jesus repeatedly is correcting their false teaching. Well, this morning we're going to wrap it up. This morning we're going to bring uh, this to a close. And in order to do so, normally you would end at the end. Uh, but this morning I'm going to actually have us end at the beginning. And we're, we're going to look at the, the, the few verses that, we, that I have purposefully left unaddressed because I, I wanted us to see the full scope of Jesus' correction. And then I wanted to tie it all together. And so that's, that's the plan this morning. This morning's goal is hopefully going to be to help us all tie together the fullness of what Jesus has been saying in Matthew 5 regarding his correcting of teachings as to how these Pharisees have been self-deceived. And I've entitled it simply the kingdom. But what it really is, it's, it's answering the question, how do we live in the kingdom? How should we be living in God's kingdom? Uh, last Sunday, I left some of some of you hanging with with the answer as to so how, how do I do this? How do I love my enemies? It's a very hard thing to do, and so we're going to cover that ground this morning. But really focusing on the reality of God's kingdom, and then asking the question: How should we live within it? So, if you uh, are with me in that, we are going to look at Matthew chapter five. I invite you to turn there, verses uh, seventeen through twenty. That's page 1378 in the Pew Bibles. If you, uh, best if you can get your eyes with me on the text. I'm reading out of the NIV. Uh, even the updated NIV might be a little bit different, but do your best to follow along. Um, four short verses. Uh, we'll read through them. I'm going to give a brief explanation of each, and then we're going to deal with some uh, concluding remarks on, uh, from this passage. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right. These are the verses that come right before every single one of Jesus' teaching. Six of them in all, and we're very briefly this morning just going to give a reminder of those, but these are the verses that set up all of Jesus' corrective teaching on that. And I want to start here in verse 17. Uh, Jesus begins by clarifying his purpose. Now, Now, Jesus wasn't formally trained as a Pharisee. Right? He, he didn't go to the same schools that the scribes went to, but he walked around and taught as one who had that kind of authority. And so, and so as those who were in charge, those religious leaders, as they would look at Jesus, they'd ask the question, who is this, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? So Jesus starts out in verse 17 by clarifying his purpose. Uh, he said, notice he says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to... Fulfill them. Uh, This word fulfill is one that I I think we very often misunderstand. Um, Jesus in coming to fulfill the law isn't coming to show that it is God's law. He's not coming to say that it's something that must stand. This word fulfill, do you know what it really means? It means to do. God's law. It means to, and you actually have the word here at the end of verse 18, accomplish God's law. That, that really is what Jesus' purpose is. Now imagine, I, I, I hope you're tracking with me so far this morning, but you might, uh, you might uh, get a little sleepy just with that until you stop and think for a moment. Think about the audacity of that statement. Here you have the scribes and Pharisees who their entire lives have built it around the perfection of understanding the law. And this itinerant preacher from Nazareth shows up and declares he's going to do it. Y'all with me now? Do you you see how offensive that is? Jesus's claim is that he is going to come as one who is actually going to fulfill or do everything that God has said in his law. And not only is that offensive on the surface, it's even heightened all the more when the Pharisees look at Jesus's life. Because Jesus didn't go and sit in the same Bible studies they did. Jesus didn't go to the same seminars and conferences that they did. In fact, you know where Jesus was? When they were sitting in their, in their pews, reading their scrolls and rehearsing the law together, do you know where they found Jesus? Jesus was at the bar. I want to show you here. This is in Mark chapter 2, 15 and 16. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many of the tax collectors and sinners were eating with them and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy Who needs a doctor? But the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Now, hopefully that hit with the irony that it should have, because were the Pharisees righteous? No, but they were what? They were self-deceived. They thought they were righteous. And here Jesus is showing that those who come into God's kingdom are not those who think they've got it all together on their own. It's those who understand their sinfulness. So uh, that's, that's our first part here in, in verse 17. Jesus comes to uh, clarify his purpose, to come and accomplish that which we cannot. It is the requirements that he characterizes with the two words, the law and the prophets. It's all that God has said. All right, second, verse 18. Uh, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. And this answers the question of why. So, so verse seven, 17 was, here's what Jesus is coming to do. Verse 18 is why Jesus is going to do it. Notice what he says. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Here's what this means. God's word will last forever. And everything that God has said will come to pass. The very best part of verse 18, though, is the word until. If you're in the habit of underlining or circling in your Bibles, that's the word that you need to underline. Here's what that means. You and I, as sinners, are in big trouble. We are in big trouble because the sin that we have will be paid for. It will be by us because that is what God has set up through the law and the prophets. You will have to Stand an account for your sins unless it can be accomplished by another who is a sufficient, commensurate sacrifice in kind with God's word. And so what this means in verse 18, why Jesus had to come is because every rule, every legislation, every judgment of God is going to stand over you. What's the word I had you circle? Until. Until what? Look what it says in verse 18. Until everything is accomplished. And this is why Jesus is coming to fulfill the law and the prophets. Because God's word is going to stand over us until it becomes fulfilled, until it becomes accomplished. And then his word will continue to stand fulfilled. And that redemption can now be applied to you through Jesus. Thirdly, verse 19 is the characterization and application of kingdom living. We are to see that the commands of God are in fact good. So um, characterization and application. Let Let me just show you again in verse 19. Anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others will be called least but whoever practices and teaches these, com- uh, these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So it's pretty simple, right? How do things work in the kingdom of heaven? Those who are breaking them are those who will find themselves out of fellowship with God in his kingdom. But those who are practicing the commands and teaching others are going to find themselves in harmony with God in his kingdom. So that's it. Verse 19. I don't want to throw you off here. It's not anything that's terribly tricky. It's the characterization of how things work in God's kingdom. How do things work in your house? Right? When your kids were living with you, or if you have kids with you today, uh, when they obey the rules in their house, how do things go for them? For them? Aren't, aren't they the greatest in the, 
kingdom of your household, right? Uh, how about when they disobey, right? Oh, they are the least, let me tell you, in the kingdom when they're, when they're disobeying, especially if they're teaching their sister how to disobey too. That's when they get in more trouble. So uh, verse 19 is very straightforward, helping us see here's how things work in the kingdom. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Uh, And then lastly, verse 20, this is showing the futility of human effort and uncovering the Pharisee's self-deception. Futility of human effort and self-deception of the Pharisees. Let me read again verse 20. He says, I tell you that unless your righteousness does what? It's got to be better than the Pharisees. Let me ask you the question, church. Yes or no? Was anyone better than the Pharisees in, in Israel? That They were those who were most righteous. Everybody knew it. They, they prided themselves on it. In fact, when they prayed publicly, they prayed like this. Lord, thank you that I'm not like these sinners. Okay. Thanks for reminding us, man. Yeah. yeah. Every time they stand up, they are always tooting their own horn. They are letting everybody know that the pinnacle of righteousness is the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, they're not good enough. You have to be better than them. Great, Jesus. Great. Who's who's got a shot then? You're telling me even the Pharisees and scribes don't measure up. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what I'm telling you. So uh, th- th- this is where we're at in these four short verses. And I want to draw out some conclusions uh, from, these, uh, from those four principles. First is this. Number one, God's word must be fulfilled. Uh, for, the, for the believer, that for us is good news. For the unbeliever, that is frightening. Uh, but it's true. God's word must be fulfilled. In Luke 24, uh, this is what Jesus says. Uh, uh, this is, by the way, after his resurrection. Luke 24, Jesus is now appearing to his disciples. He says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled. That was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So point number one is that God's word must be fulfilled. If you uh, have your Bible, I'd invite you, hold your spot in Matthew and just turn very briefly to Matthew 24. So towards the end of the gospel, Matthew 24, verse 35. Matthew 24, verse 35. This is Jesus, because Jesus is fully God. Look what his words say. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I want you to know that Jesus did not come to change the law. He didn't come to develop God's Word. He didn't come to change the word of the prophets. He didn't come to reject it. He didn't come to supersede it. He didn't come to dissolve it. What did he come to do? Fulfill it. That's what he came to do. Because God's word must be fulfilled. He says heaven and earth are going to pass away. God's word is still going to stand. And what this means is that uh, justice needs to show in in two fashions. Righteousness must be revealed. And punishment must be delivered. Both happen with Jesus. In Jesus alone, righteousness is revealed. And punishment for sin, even though Jesus was sinless, 
is delivered. So that's the first observation. Number two is this. Do, do not fool yourselves into thinking that you can fulfill it. Now, what I mean by that is without God, right? So this is, this is for the person who's not a Christian. This is for that, that good old boy on the street. When you say, are you going to heaven? Say, yeah, why? They say, I'm a good person. Uh, they are fooling themselves. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you can actually do this because your righteousness, Jesus says, has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. And the scribes and Pharisees were trying to follow the law. Well, let me show you what Paul writes about this concerning the law. This is in Galatians 3. Galatians 3, 23 and 24, Paul says, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to do what? Do you see what it is? To lead us to Christ. That we might become justified by faith. You can't do it on your own. You can't fulfill the law on your own. You're a prisoner when you try to do that. All it does is prove you can't do it. You show yourself to be a slave to sin. And you're locked up. All right, fine. What's the purpose of the law then? It's to point you to Jesus. That's the purpose of it. Another passage here in Romans 3, very similarly, Paul says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. He can't even do it. Rather, through the law, what's the purpose of it now? We become conscious of our sin. Ah, so you're telling me the law is like that big green sign that says Louisville this way, Lexington that way. That's what the law does. It points out to us that we need a savior. That's exactly it. So we can't fool ourselves into thinking that we can, can fulfill it because we cannot. The scribes and Pharisees thought they could. Jesus says your righteousness has to be higher than even theirs. I, I want to just remind you real quick of what Maury read for us in Romans 8, uh, specifically dealing with this subject. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is the verse right here I want you to pay attention to. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. How awesome is that? You, you can't do it, but God does it. How does God do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a, a sin offering on our behalf. So... Um, don't fool yourself into thinking that you can fulfill the law because you can't. Um, this is where we have to take a step and now examine why Jesus is going to say everything that he said that we've looked at over the last six, six weeks. Remember, there are, there are six times that Jesus says the phrase, you've heard that it is said, but I say to you. Um, I want to ask the question, what was Jesus really teaching? Do you remember some of the categories we looked at, right? One of, it, one of them was on murder, another was on adultery. Do you remember a little review here? Let's get the wheels up to speed for the last month and a half, right? We, we looked at uh, divorce was one, uh, loving our enemies, uh, a cheek, uh, turning together cheek. You guys remember some of this? Let's ask the question, hold on. If, if, we, if we now step back with uh, the beginning here, verse 17 through 20, as the preface, we got to ask the question, okay, if what Jesus is teaching us is that you cannot really fulfill the law, What's he really saying throughout the rest of it? Here's what I want to offer to you. Three different categories. Jesus, first of all, deals with our thoughts, and then our words, and then our deeds. 
Um, I'm, we're going to do a little Bible study here for three minutes. You guys ready? You have your, your, have your Bibles out? Um, let's, let's take a look at some of these passages. Starting in verse 21 through 26, uh, Jesus is dealing with the subject of anger, right? Or, well, he starts out with, with murder. You've heard it says, you've, you've heard that it is said, do not murder. Let me just time out for a second. Do you guys know that murder is wrong? What do you think, Paul? Yeah. Uh, adultery, right or wrong? Divorce, right or wrong? Are, are we, all, we all single-minded here as to things that are clearly wrong? Well, guess what? So were the scribes and Pharisees. They had no objection to that. If you were to go to a scribe and a Pharisee and say, is adultery right? They'd be like, no, of course not. Is murder right? No, of course not. I don't do those things. But what they did is they made opportunity. They self-deceived themselves into thinking they were innocent when, in fact, Jesus is showing you're actually guilty in two ways in thought. So if you're angry with somebody, Jesus says that's tantamount to murder. And then he says, if you lust in your heart, that's tantamount to what? Adultery. The first two that go together deal with your thoughts in order to show what? Are you righteous or are you a sinner? I'm actually, I'm actually a sinner. And, th- and then he's going to move on to our, our words. The first one that he looks at has to do with divorce. Right? So, so divorce comes by the breaking of your word. You, you stood before God and before witnesses and by your word, you pledged yourself to another. What does divorce do? It breaks your word. It turns you into an adulterer. Because you said you were going to forsake all others. But now you're marrying somebody else. If you were to get divorced and marry somebody else. So Jesus is showing here that you're, by your words, you're proved as a sinner. And then in the next section, he talks about don't, don't give oaths. Stop, stop making these oaths and coming up with certain oaths that you can break and certain oaths that you can keep. Because you're breaking your word. You're shown to be a sinner by your word. And then lastly, uh, in the, the next two, uh, in verses 38 through 42, he's dealing with your deeds. So if someone strikes me on the cheek, you know what I get to do? Tooth for a what? Tooth for a tooth, man, right? No, Jesus says. Look at your, by your deeds, you're proved to be evil. So he's contrasting charity with revenge. And then in our last section that we looked at last Sunday, he's contrasting love with hate. Do you you guys see what they did? Do you see what the Pharisees did? They came up with a way to be self-deceived into thinking they were righteous when in fact they were guilty. Man, I'll tell you what, if I'm not looking at the signs and I think I'm headed west when I'm actually headed east, it's going to be a rude awakening for me when I reach my perceived destination. Jesus is trying to show them you are on the wrong path. Not because you've missed the signs. You've been reading them wrong. You've been reading what God has said and just taking the letter of the law. You've thrown out the spirit of the law and you think that you're righteous when in fact by your thoughts, by your words, and by your deeds, you are not righteous. So I, I, how do you feel this morning? Is everybody kind of like, all right, I, I, chapter five of Matthew is really making a lot of sense to me now. I, I see for what he is trying to do here, pointing out to those who were the most holy that really, in fact, you guys were the most self-deceived. All right, let's uh, continue on. Lastly then, third observation. Um, uh, the kingdom 
uh, kingdom living looks like two things. It looks like practicing living like Jesus, and it looks like helping teach others to live like Jesus. I just want to draw you to the text one, once more in Matthew 6. If you look with me in verse 19, Jesus says, But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices and teaches. Hmm. I hope that's why you're here this morning. I hope that's why you come to church. I, I, I need the encouragement from the body. I need to see my brothers and sisters again. I need to be challenged to remember my behavior should not be characterized by the world. But I need to have a, a practice, a discipline in my life to look less like Ryan and look more like who? Look more like Jesus Christ. But that's not all of it because you know what we do when we get together? We help show this to one another. And so, do you know what kingdom living looks like? It looks like helping teach others. Um, the public school system, uh, you know, for all of its benefits that, that it gives, uh, it really has a predominant worldly value that's seen as children who come from homes that don't love Jesus gather together and they influence one another. This is not a shock to anybody this morning, right? Children influence one another? Yeah. Um, they learn what to, what to say, what's cool to say. They learn what to look at online, what's cool to look at online. They're learning that from their friends. Now, if, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you'll know that you have a set of values that's in contrast to the world's values. How are your kids going to learn that if you don't, number one, practice it? How are your kids going to learn that if you don't, number two, teach them how to do that? It's, it's the same thing that we do in church, right? So school just got bigger for us, right? <laughs> you're, you're, you're not going to class anymore, except every single day you go to work, you're going to school. You're, it's a different kind of school. And you have folks in the world whose values don't match up with those in the house, those in our home, where our Father, our loving Heavenly Father, is helping, helping us know how to practice living like His Son, and that we would teach one another how to live like Jesus. So I'm, I'm wrapping up here. Um, how do we do that? Micah, could you hit the space bar? Right. Number one, you need to confess your sins and your inability to attain righteousness. I, I'm entitling, entitling this, how do I start? All right, I, Pastor, I believe you. How do I start doing this? Well, number one, you confess your sins and your inability to attain righteousness. Number two, you need to reorient your heart according to the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. This is a big one, you guys. Number two is probably the biggest one. The re it's one thing to say, I'm guilty of sin. Show of hands this morning. Anybody in church willing to be honest? Guilty of sin? Yeah. That, that's, that's one part of it. We all get there pretty easily in church, right? It's a whole other thing now to ask your heart to be reoriented to follow his word. Um, I, I encounter this in my own home when I uh, tell, my, uh, tell my son certain uh, commands like, like go put your socks on and 30 minutes later he hasn't even put his socks on. Why, why didn't you put your socks on? Well, I, I was. What? 
you see, you see what I mean? Like, now I'm, I'm picking on him a little bit. I warned him I was going to pick on him for that, by the way. That's the punishment you get for not putting your socks on when I tell you. Are you, are you, how about you? Are, are you guilty at all? Has God offered you a command? Go do this. Are you? And if he comes back to ask, hey, how are you doing with loving your neighbor? I was just about, I was just about to start. I was just about to stop playing my game and I was just about to get started with that. Really? Yeah, this, is, this is, folks, this is what we really struggle with. Um, we want to obey, but we really struggle to do it. And there's a, there's a way that we can help doing it. And, he, and here's what I want to offer you. Thirdly, you need to focus your heart on Jesus and feed your soul from God's word with God's people. This is going to really help. The more that you make Jesus the satisfaction of your desires and the more that you allow his word and the influence of his people to shape you, the easier it is going to be to do number two, to listen to the spirit that desires to lead us and guide us. By the way, that's just how you start. I'm going to give you three ways for the majority of us here, which is how do I continue doing this? Well, very, very simple is this. You need to continually remind yourself you're a child of God. You need to determine your identity not by what the culture says about you, by your status, by your occupation, by your income level. It is in the church that every single social construct of division is equalized. Right? There is neither Jew nor Scythian, right? Barbarian. There is neither slave nor free, male nor female. Whatever social division, I might say there is neither Democrat or Republican. Um, Packer fan, Lions fan. Uh, you, you get what I mean? Like we, we could think of every single social structure that would separate us in the church. All those disappear because you're a child of God. So start there. Just, just remember that if I'm going to walk by the spirit, I need to remind myself my identity comes from God, the father. Secondly, I need to let Christ dwell in my heart richly. Uh, I'm pick on Aaron for a minute. Aaron, do you have what's your what's your version of the Bible? Do you have? Yes. Yes. Would you turn to Colossians three sixteen for me, real quick? So, uh, letting Christ and Christ's Word. There's two ways that you have to embrace it: dwelling and and richly. Aaron, could you read that passage aloud for us? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Good. So if I just put this up on the screen, right? Let Christ and his word dwell in you richly. Everybody's like, yeah. Okay. Uh, Aaron, how, how do we do that? You could turn there too, by the way. Colossians 3.16. By teaching and admonishing. Teaching and admonishing. How do we admonish? Wisdom, singing what kinds of tunes? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Wow, wow. So it's not just hymns, right? It's not just spiritual songs. It includes psalms and, okay, I'm picking on you, but you, 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 hopefully you're seeing the point here. What does it mean to let Christ dwell in you richly? It means I have regular interaction with God's people by admonishing them, encouraging them, seeing that as my role for being here. 
Folks, that's your role to be here. You're fooling yourself to say, oh yeah, Jesus dwells richly in my life because I have a little cross hanging on my wall at home. What? No, you're not doing it right. You need to be with God's people, encouraging God's people. And I want you to know every one of you in the sound of my voice this morning, you have a role to play in that. And it's diverse. Not everybody in here has the same gifting for that. But together, we will be letting Christ dwell in our hearts richly. And then singing together song, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. All right, lastly, um, we need to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. This was Maury's verse for us this morning out of Romans chapter 8. It says that the righteous requirements of the law will be fully met in those of us who walk not according to the flesh, but who walk according to the Spirit. That means we seek to obey. So what does it look like to live in the kingdom? It looks like practicing living like Jesus and teaching others. Let's pray.